I just wanted to tell you about a new podcast I found called True Crime Deadline. It's a podcast hosted by Emmy Award-winning journalist Matt Johnson, who dusts off his reporter notebooks to bring you behind-the-scenes details of true crime stories he has covered over his career. Cases that still haunt him. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear his promo and the promo for Meet My Ghost. Before we begin this episode, I have a few announcements. If you're in the San Antonio, Texas area on September 7th, 2019, the Texas Podcast Union will be hosting another meetup. Join me and other Texas podcasters for some brews, chats, and free merch. We will be at the Hoppy Monk. Details can be found on our Facebook page, so just click on events and reserve your tickets. I would like to welcome to the club our most recent Patreon supporters, Joy and Kareen L. As a reminder, you can join us on Patreon and listen to not only patron-only episodes, but also the new series called TCFC Prime. The topics are strictly chosen by the listeners, so if you have something you want me to cover that I won't cover on the normal feed, that's where you can do it. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. This episode contains information about sexual assault, rape, incest, and child endangerment. Please listen with extreme caution. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. April 27, 2008, began as an ordinary day for Elizabeth Fritzel, but it would ultimately end as a day of freedom for Elizabeth and a day of reverse imprisonment for her father, Joseph Fritzel. Okay, on to the show. Elizabeth Fritzel was born on April 6, 1966, to Joseph and Rosemarie Fritzel in Amstead in Austria. She was the last of seven children the couple had during their long marriage, although she would not be the last of Joseph's children Rosemarie would eventually raise. Elizabeth was considered something of a favored child of Joseph's, if such a thing existed. Joseph ran a very strict home, and he was hard on all of his kids, even Elizabeth. He just went a little easier on her compared to the rest of her siblings. When she was 15, Elizabeth went into a waitressing program to learn the skills of a successful waitress with the hope of eventually landing a job once the program ended. Two years into the program, on January 28, 1983, Elizabeth ran away. She saw an opportunity to escape her domineering father and seized it. She lasted a full three weeks before the police found her and returned her home to her parents. The police never bothered to find out why she actually ran away. Most police and authorities wouldn't question a 17-year-old girl running away from home. If they had looked deeper, they would have discovered that Elizabeth was running away from her own personal hell. Her father had begun raping her when she was only 11 or 12 years old. He raped her repeatedly throughout the years, but she never told anyone. You didn't cross Joseph Fritzel. He was not only incredibly strict and firm in his ways, he was also a child molester and abuser. Although he would later claim he waited until Elizabeth was of age and insisted he wasn't attracted to children, he simply couldn't resist Elizabeth, his own daughter. 
He even had the audacity to later claim that Elizabeth began to want to have sex with him on her own. On her last day of imprisonment, Elizabeth saw that her eldest child, Kirsten, fell desperately ill. Kirsten was always sickly, but this was worse than normal, and it was obvious the girl was struggling. Elizabeth managed to persuade her father to take Kirsten to the emergency room for treatment by a real doctor. She begged and pleaded, sobbing about her daughter's poor health. When he finally relented, Joseph had Elizabeth help him carry Kirsten upstairs from the basement dungeon to his waiting car. The house was completely empty, except for the three of them and Elizabeth's other downstairs children. Elizabeth Fritzel was 42 years old, and this was the first time she was seeing the light of day in nearly 24 years. She soaked in the precious seconds of light, believing them to be her only moments in the sun for the rest of her life. As soon as Kirsten was loaded into the car, Elizabeth was forced back into her tiny, dark basement dungeon to await the fate of her daughter. At the hospital where Kirsten was being treated, the first alarm bells were going off for the hospital staff. The young woman, who looked more like a child, was very frail and hovering near death. The staff questioned Joseph who this young lady was, but he claimed to have no knowledge of her identity. He eventually told the staff that he found her in a stairwell with a note from the girl's mother pinned to her. The note asked nurses to take care of her sick child. The doctors were suspicious and told Joseph that they really needed to speak with the girl's mother for more medical history. He was reluctant because he didn't want anyone to find out his dark, terrible secret. The police were contacted, and when they arrived and saw Joseph, they recalled a time many years earlier when they were called to the Fritzel home for a report of a missing girl that they believed was a runaway. In fact, police had been there a few times regarding the Fritzel child. Police believed she had a history of running away, but now they began to wonder if there was something more sinister going on. The missing person's report filed by Roseanne was still an active and open case, so police started asking questions. The news media became aware of the story of the young woman at the hospital, with a link to the missing woman from decades before. Elizabeth was astounded when she saw the news report. Once again, she begged her father to allow her to go to her daughter at the hospital. Naturally, Joseph denied this request, but Elizabeth wasn't going to give up this time. She promised him that she would never tell their secret. She swore up and down that she would tell police that she had run away and joined a cult, just like he told them so many years before. Joseph saw there wasn't going to be a good outcome for him otherwise, and he knew Elizabeth wouldn't ever tell because he believed he had her brainwashed. He didn't want the police snooping around and asking questions, so he finally relented, and Elizabeth knew she had won her freedom. When she arrived at the hospital, the staff was so alarmed by her appearance that they immediately contacted the police. They arrived to encounter a severely malnourished and underweight Elizabeth Fritzel. She was questioned and initially told police her cover story about running away and joining a cult. They didn't believe her story for a second, but even the police couldn't imagine in their wildest dreams the horror Elizabeth actually had lived. They reassured her that she wasn't in any kind of trouble 
and told her that she wouldn't ever have to see whoever was hurting her again. She was promised safety. Once the police were finally able to convince her of that, she was ready to talk. Her story chilled police to the bone. In 1978, Joseph applied for a building permit for an extension on his basement. The extension took him about five years to complete, and when he was done, it easily passed inspection. But Joseph did not show the inspectors the dungeon he built to imprison his own children. In the summer of 1984, Joseph told Elizabeth he needed help carrying a door into the basement. Once they got down there, he took a cloth soaked in ether and held it over Elizabeth's nose and mouth until she passed out. Then he chained Elizabeth to metal posts behind a bed. The chain was so short she could only move a few inches from the bed. He left her like that for two straight days. The next day he came down and raped her again. He treated her like a dog, putting her on a leash to take her to the bathroom. After a few days passed, he adjusted the chain so it was around her waist and she could reach the toilet on her own. He kept her on this length of chain for six to nine months. Elizabeth reported being unsure how often Joseph raped her during this time period, but estimates it was over 3,000 times. He eventually removed the chains on Elizabeth to make it easier for him to rape her. He rarely spoke to her and she was completely isolated with no one to talk with and no outside contact besides the constant abuse by her own father. The day after Joseph locked Elizabeth up, Rosemarie reported her missing. In an effort to cover for himself, Joseph forced Elizabeth to write a letter which was postmarked September 21st, 1984. The letter said that she didn't want to live at home anymore, so she went to live with a friend and not to look for her. If they did, she would leave the country. After reading the letter with Rosemary, Joseph told her that Elizabeth most likely ran away and joined a cult. Because Elizabeth had run away before, the story didn't seem that far-fetched. With the letter, the police stopped looking into Elizabeth's disappearance, but the case was never officially closed. Over time, Joseph completely brainwashed Elizabeth and told her that if she tried to attack him or escape, he'd gas her. After each visit, he would mess with something near the door to make it seem like he was setting up a device to gas her. Joseph also said that if Elizabeth tried to open the door, she'd be killed by electric shock. None of this was true, but Elizabeth never tested it to find out. Joseph refused to use any type of contraceptives when he raped her, and he also physically abused Elizabeth and made her reenact scenes from pornography with him. In the summer of 1986, Elizabeth became pregnant with her first child, but she suffered a miscarriage. She became pregnant again in 1988 and gave birth to a girl that she named Kirsten. Before Kirsten was born, Elizabeth begged Joseph to bring her a medical book on birth. He eventually did, bringing along a pair of scissors, towels, disinfectants, and diapers. Joseph did not come down to the basement until 10 days after Kirsten was born. Elizabeth gave birth to a son, Stefan, in 1990, and a daughter, Lisa, in 1992. There was not enough room in the basement for Elizabeth and three children, so Joseph decided Lisa would come to live upstairs with him and Rosemarie. 
nine-month-old Lisa was left in a box on the Fritzel House doorstep on May 19, 1993. She weighed 12 pounds and was 24 inches long. Attached to the box was allegedly a letter written from Elizabeth that read in part, Dear parents, I am leaving you my little daughter, Lisa. Take good care of my little girl. You will probably be shocked to hear from me after all these years. I breastfed her for six and a half months, and now she drinks milk from the bottle. She is a good girl, and she eats everything else from the spoon. Joseph took the letter from the box to the police. He planned ahead, bringing an old notebook of Elizabeth's in case they wanted to do a handwriting analysis. Joseph told authorities he wanted to adopt his granddaughter, and within a year, the adoption was official. Joseph and Rosemary Fritzel became the official adopted parents to Joseph's actual daughter. I'm going to let that one sink in for a minute. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsor. I have been looking for all-natural and healthy products to add to my rotation of beauty supplies, if you will. All right, guys, so I've been using Native for a while now. And like I told you before, I've tried a million other deodorants, and Native is the only one that truly works for me. Native can hang with you during your workout, if you're a busy mom, or even if you work those 16-hour days. And in Texas, working 16-hour days, you are definitely sweating. My favorite thing is the ingredients, so less is more with Native. They have fewer, simpler ingredients, so you know everything that's in their deodorant. And it's worth it. Aluminum may be linked to some serious health ramifications. Although Native is priced at a slight premium when compared to conventional deodorants, it is safe and effective. And they offer free exchanges and returns in the U.S., My favorite scent is the lavender and rose. It smells so good. I seriously can't get enough of it. And you don't even have to use very much when you apply it. If you subscribe and save, you save 17%. You basically save $2 per stick and have Native conveniently delivered to your door every one, two, three, or four months. So for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TCFC during checkout. Again, to get 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TCFC. In 1994, Joseph went to Thailand for three weeks. It is assumed that he left a stockpile of food for Elizabeth and the children while he was away and it was probably the longest period of peace that Elizabeth experienced in her short life. She would have three weeks of no abuse at the hands of Joseph, and she was likely so relieved for the short respite. Also in 1994, Elizabeth gave birth to yet another daughter she called Monica. On December 16, 1994, nine-month-old Monica was left in Lisa's stroller outside the Fritzel home. It was reported that Joseph either called the Fritzel house and pretended to be Elizabeth or used a voice recording of Elizabeth saying, I just left her at your door. Rosemarie must have been very shocked to receive a phone call from her estranged daughter, especially because they had just changed their telephone number and it was unlisted at that time. Regardless, Rosemarie must not have thought too much about it since she ended up agreeing to raise this baby too. 
Elizabeth gave birth to twins, Alexander and Michael, in 1996. Michael had breathing difficulties right after his birth and was turning blue. Elizabeth begged Joseph to get the baby medical attention, but he just said, what will be, will be. Baby Michael passed away within a few days of birth. Joseph incinerated Michael's body in the furnace, then spread the ashes in the garden. The baby Alexander was sent to live upstairs with the Fritzels and was likely introduced into the family, much the same way as his sisters. Elizabeth's last child, Felix, was born on December 16, 2002. Felix was kept in the basement because Rosemary couldn't handle another child. Despite no actual example of even halfway decent parenting, Elizabeth was great with the children. Because the Fritzels adopted three of Joseph and Elizabeth's children, social workers often visited the Fritzel home to check on the welfare of the adopted children. They never found anything suspicious and even wrote that the Fritzels are very loving with their children. The children living upstairs as adopted children were frequently treated much better than Joseph's children with Rosemarie. These kids were given encouragement and were even allowed to take gymnastics and music lessons. But Joseph was not nice to the downstairs children. He would often punish them by turning off the lights so they would live in complete darkness, and he would withhold food and show them pictures of the upstairs children playing outside. Rosemarie was told she could not enter the basement under any circumstances. Because she was an obedient and submissive wife, Rosemarie followed her husband's orders. Around 100 tenants rented rooms in the Fritzel house over the years. They were told if they went to the garden or basement, they would be evicted immediately. Tenants later said they would hear noises from the basement, but Joseph would say it was the pipes. No one ever thought there was anything suspicious going on. For reference, the dungeon slash basement was 5.5 feet high, 377 square feet, and was completely soundproofed. To get to the hidden dungeon door, you had to go through five different rooms and eight doors. The door to the dungeon was hidden behind a set of shelves and was only 3.3 inches tall. The dungeon door was really two doors consisting of a concrete reinforced metal door that weighed 661 pounds and another steel door. There were locks on the dungeon door that could only be opened with a special code and a remote. Once you got through the dungeon door, you would enter a narrow hallway that led to the single dungeon room. The dungeon room had a shower, sink, toilet, and hot plate. There were no windows and thus no fresh air. In a very rare moment of kindness, Joseph brought them a television. He usually came down every three days or so to bring food and to rape Elizabeth. After Elizabeth gave birth to her third child, Joseph had to make more room in the basement dungeon he forced the children and Elizabeth to dig through the soil with their bare hands in order to add room. By 1993, the size of the basement dungeon was a total of 592 square feet for a grown woman and three growing children. When they were freed in 2008, the dungeon had two bedrooms that each contained two beds and an area with a kitchenette and a bathroom. The dungeon was crude and completely moldy and rat-infested. It was extremely hot in the summer and would basically become a sauna. During the winter, it was like a freezer. Elizabeth and the downstairs children 
never had the proper clothing for the elements they were forced to live in. On April 27, 2008, Joseph Fritzl was officially arrested on charges of incest, rape, enslavement, coercion, and murder by neglect, which was for Michael, the baby who passed away at only a few days old. He made a full confession, saying he didn't want to molest Elizabeth until she went through puberty, pointedly stating that he does not molest children, but the urge to have sex with Elizabeth grew stronger and stronger. He admitted that he knew Elizabeth didn't want to have sex with her father, quote, but the urge to finally be able to taste the forbidden fruit was too strong. He talked about how when Elizabeth entered puberty, she stopped listening to him. She started drinking and smoking and running away. He went on to say that that's why he had to create the dungeon, because he needed to create a place where he could protect her from the outside world. Joseph was quoted directly as saying, It must have been 1981 or 1982 when I started to turn a room in my cellar into a cell. I brought in a heavy door of steel and concrete and equipped it with a remote-controlled electrical motor, which would open it only after a numeric code was entered. I isolated the whole bunker to become soundproof. I installed a wash basin, a toilet, a bed, a cooker, and a refrigerator. Electricity and light were already installed. Perhaps someone noticed the construction works, but it would have not made any difference whether they did or not. The cellar of my house belonged to me and to me alone. It was my kingdom to which only I had access to. Everyone who lived there knew that, my wife, my children, my lodgers, and no one would have dared to enter my realm or even ask me what I was doing there. I told everyone that my office was there, full of private files that were my business alone, and that was enough. Everyone adhered to my rules. In his confession, Joseph said he thought about letting Elizabeth go after a few weeks, but he was afraid of getting arrested. He said that he wanted to have children with Elizabeth and wanted to have a proper family with a good wife and a couple of kids. The reality of what Joseph wanted was another human he could have complete and utter control over. During her imprisonment, Joseph refused to let Elizabeth use contraceptives because he knew that if he had children with her, she would be unattractive to all other men, and then she would always have to be with her father. Joseph truly seemed to believe that he provided for his dungeon family. He talked about how he brought flowers to Elizabeth and toys and books for the children. He said he would sometimes watch a movie with the kids while Elizabeth cooked dinner, and they would even sit at the table to eat together. He said he gave Elizabeth a washing machine at the end of 2002, so she didn't have to hand wash the clothes anymore. He told police that he always put a time lock on the door so that if he didn't come down after a certain period of time, the door would open. That way the kids and Elizabeth could escape in the event he had an accident or died. He actually tried to make himself sound like a hero of sorts, when in reality, he was a complete monster. A psychiatric assessment was performed prior to Joseph's criminal trial to make sure he was mentally fit to stand trial. During the meetings with the psychiatrist, Joseph confessed that he locked his mother in a room at the top of his house and bricked over the window so she couldn't see daylight. It is alleged that he kept her up there for 21 years until she died. The psychiatrist believes that due to Joseph's childhood, he was susceptible to an emotional handicap 
and that he felt the need to possess an entire human being. Joseph locked up Elizabeth because he had the need to control someone like his mother had controlled him. He believed Elizabeth showed resistance towards him, but in reality, the only resistance she showed was trying to escape years of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse at the hands of her father. The assessment found that Joseph knew what he was doing for all those years, which couldn't have come to a shock to anyone. He was formally diagnosed with a severe combined personality disorder and a serious sexual disorder. However, he was found to be sane enough to stand trial, and the psychiatrist recommended Joseph be in a psychiatric institution for the rest of his natural life. On March 16, 2009, Joseph's trial began. He pleaded guilty to all counts except murder and enslavement. His defense attorney had the audacity to state that Joseph was protecting his daughter by keeping her in the basement dungeon. They said he was a caring father who brought things downstairs for his family, such as a Christmas tree. The court permitted Elizabeth to pre-record her testimony so she wouldn't have to face Joseph in person. Despite that, she snuck into the courtroom in disguise to watch the proceedings. After Joseph saw Elizabeth in person and watching her 11 hours of testimony, he decided to change his plea to guilty on all counts. On March 19, 2009, 73-year-old Joseph was sentenced to life in prison with eligibility for parole after 15 years at a psychiatric institution. The whole family, except Kirsten, went to a special psychiatric clinic in Austria. Kirsten was transferred to the clinic when she was well enough in June 2008. There was a special team of doctors and therapists, including neurologists, psychotherapists, speech therapists, and physiotherapists. The whole family had to get used to sunlight and having the space to roam free of restraints or restrictions. They were each given their own separate rooms, personal belongings, and toys to restore their spatial orientation. Without proper sunlight, Elizabeth and the downstairs kids were extremely pale. Stefan was not able to walk properly as he was taller than the dungeon ceiling and therefore forced to slouch down his entire life. The upstairs family and the downstairs family were finally brought together after all those years of forced separation. The children that lived upstairs had to undergo treatment for anger and resentment and a form of survivor's guilt. Those children struggled very much knowing they were basically hand-picked to live upstairs by the man that was both their father and grandfather. DNA tests confirmed that all six children were Joseph's. Rosemarie filed for divorce while the whole awful story came out. She too struggled greatly with not knowing what was happening under her own nose for so many decades. She will likely have a lifetime of therapy ahead of her. In 2013, the cellar of the Fritzel home was filled in with concrete. The house was put up for sale, but no one bought it until 2016, when it was then turned into apartments. Joseph remains in Stein Prison. He changed his last name. He shows no remorse, and it is rumored that he has dementia. He is kept in solitary confinement. Elizabeth and her children, Kirsten, Stefan, Lisa, Monica, Alexander, and Felix, eventually moved to a safe home in early 2009, but they had moved back to the clinic for the duration of the trial 
after a British paparazzo broke into the house to photograph Elizabeth. After the trial, they moved to a village only known as Village X in the countryside of Austria. They live with a team of bodyguards under constant video surveillance, but the doors of the bedrooms are permanently open and the walls are brightly painted. Elizabeth found love with one of her bodyguards, Thomas Wagner, and he eventually moved in with the family. Elizabeth and her children have been given new identities and they undergo weekly therapy. It is reported that Elizabeth has stopped going to therapy with her doctor's approval and she is focused on moving on. She has learned how to drive, helps her kids with homework, and easily makes new friends. It is also reported that Rosemary visits once a week. With a lot of love and therapy, hopefully, this family can find a happy ending after all. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out and it helps keep us in the true crime genre, which is new to Apple Podcasts. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. Audio engineering and custom music for the show was provided by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Follow him on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or visit Nico at wetalkofdreams.com. This episode was researched by Haley Gray and written by Mary Cole. While you're waiting for the next episode, check out some of my pod friend's shows. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. I'm Matt Johnson, boots on the ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the podcast that gives you a unique reporter's point of view from the yellow crime scene tape to the gavel in the courtroom. We paint a picture on True Crime Deadline with murder, mystery, and missing persons cases. My contacts grant you access to those case files with disturbing new details and exclusive interviews. Details might have you thinking, no, that didn't happen. They didn't do that, did they? And then there's the Oprah-inspired, where are they now? Binge these 30-minute Crime Bite episodes where you get your podcasts. Buckle up, investigators. You're on deadline. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. Until next time. Welcome to Meet My Ghosts, a podcast of short ghost stories where you'll hear a collection of quick but spooky encounters in each show. I'm Sandy Tufts, a therapist who's obsessed with all things haunted, and I'll bring you eerie tales, mostly true, some fiction, because there's nothing like a good ghost story. Simple, old school storytelling. Turn off the lights and listen up. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me for the show and you decide. You can find Meet My Ghost wherever you listen to your podcasts, as well as all social media. 
and visit meetmyghost.com. Come get creeped out with me.